They are purposefully surveilling families to investigate and to separate. If you are intentionally holding rights from people, make no mistakes, everything that come behind it is also intentional. Because if it was not intentional to separate families, you would ensure that people had the ability to protect their family, that they had autonomy in the choices that were made regarding their families. We all see the outcomes, mm -hmm. but yet we continue to invest in and keep from families the knowledge they should have about protecting their family by knowing their rights and having any CPS across the state of New York, including ACS first and foremost in New York City, share those rights with people. I want to thank both of you for joining this uh, podcast. We're very honored to have Aaron Miles Cloud, who's the co-founder of Movement for Family Power, joining us today, and Joyce McMillan, who is the founder and executive director of Just Making a Change for Families. So Joyce, you were talking about the Miranda, the bill that went to committee to die. Can you talk a little bit about what that bill would do and what was um, a little bit of the background about that bill? The only thing that the Miranda Act would do is ensure that families know the rights they already have. It would not increase rights. It would not expand rights. Any of the adjectives that you wanna put in place of increase or expand does not exist. There are rights that people already have that we believe that we know families should know at the onset of CPS knocking on their door. And one of those rights is the right to refuse them entry without a court order. And I just wanna share the dangers involved when there's not a court order. They can coerce the family to do anything without any oversight or knowledge of anyone else on this earth. The court won't know because there's been no court filing. The family won't have an attorney to advise them. The family won't have an advocate. They won't have anything other than the word of the agency that is taking advantage of separating and causing great harm. If I can jump in a couple things. I think one thing that Joyce started off saying is like, what these laws don't do, the informed consent bill, the Miranda bill, the anti-harassment bill, they're not expanding the legal framework per se, which is why we need people at CERDNA, at Andrus to give us the room to actually expand the legal framework. But I wanted to stop at what it doesn't do and tell you what it does do. What these bills do is that they support the will, the energy and actions of directly impacted people. They give as a bit of power back to people who have been told for generations, you don't have power. And I think it's really important to understand that the resistance isn't because these bills are limited. The resistance is because these bills have the capacity to allow people to say no to oppression. That's what they're scared of. They're scared of people not opening the door. They're scared of people not agreeing to do a drug test. 
They're scared of people turning back into their community and figuring out solutions. So what do these bills do? They give time for families to create solutions for harm versus the government entering and creating punishment and surveillance. And it may be the case that people will say, what's the big deal about having a whole bunch of preventive services? I really love a whole bunch of questionnaires for families. And we're in, and I want to just name that, we're in an environment right now where people are, they love ACEs, they love questionnaires. The reality is like questionnaires are not going to help us. Thousands of HIPAA forms are not going to help us. What helps power in communities, what helps investment in communities is allowing communities to have the power. There's no yes without a no. There just isn't. That's such an important point that even though these bills would just inform people of their rights, that itself is very threatening to the status quo, right? And so I wanted to ask you both about the work that you all do and all, and because you're both founders of your organizations, how did you come to just start your organization? What's the, the story about how, the founding of your groups? How I began Just Make a Change for Families is one, that I was impacted, and two, the journey of advocating to authentically support families and not have these watered down mechanisms that the same powers that are causing harm is controlling, I chose to start my own organization where I could have autonomy and how I challenged the status quo. That wasn't happening when I worked for other organizations as an advocate. And Erin, could you talk a little bit about what uh, made you start Movement for Family Power? Yeah, so Movement for Family Power was co-founded by my partner, Lisa Sungoy. And I really credit a lot of the vision of starting this organization to her. And we work to end the policing and punishment of families by the foster system, by professional capacity. We are both lawyers. And so we had been doing representation of parents in different capacities. So Lisa was representing um, pregnant people that were using drugs and working on cases across the country. I was a public defender in the Bronx representing parents who were working to get their kids back and they were being surveilled and punished and controlled. And I've been doing that work for about a decade. In 2005, I worked and published this article around Black Lives Matter and the family policing system and just really talking about the need for a really united political analysis around the family policing system in the way that we have a shared political analysis around the need to end youth prisons generally, um, immigration detention centers. And Lisa and I connected on that just political understanding and need. I think at that time, a lot of people within the child welfare space were actively frustrated that these ideas were not connected. Joyce, what is your vision for abolition? My vision for abolition is to remove all of the harmful aspects of family policing. And if that means bare bones, then down to bare bones. If it's not working, why are we fighting to keep it? The thing that people ask me every day that's most annoying is, what about the children that actually need help? And my response is, they don't help them anyway. It doesn't matter whether a family actually needs help or doesn't need help. But let's also be clear that 87% of the removals are related to poverty that's framed as neglect. 
and there's a very small percentage of accusations. These are only accusations, the 13%, that they come in and separate families for. It doesn't mean that it's actually happened. And so if we focused on families that may, air quotes, may actually need support, which fall within that 13%, then I think we would be able to do a good job at minimum in helping families to move forward and rectify whatever it is that is causing uneasiness in their home. Yeah, we are explicitly abolitionists. We came to be in 2018 an abolitionist organization at a time when no one wanted to talk about abolition and the foster system. No one wanted to say it, no one to have that conversation, right? And the reality is abolition has two parts to its definition, both to destroy and to build, right? And I am committed, our organization is committed to ending racism, sexism, heteronormativity, xenophobia. We are committed to ending that. We're not committed to tweaking it. We're not committed to providing lip service around it. We're committed to ending it. And if you're really, truly committed to ending all forms of racism everywhere, all forms of economic injustice everywhere, you get rid of it. You get rid of it. It's not something to be afraid of. It's not something to be concerned about the talking point. It's something to be very explicit about. And I think it's important. And I ask for funders to be courageous about being explicit about that because I need everyone, especially those with power to be explicit, to be clear, to be direct. They are on the side of ending racism. I used to, I talk about this kind of, this metaphor, which is like, you start making a cake and all of a sudden you put in salt versus sugar. There's no fixing that cake. It's done. That's a salty cake, right? You throw it out, you start again. That's not scary. It's just reasonable, right? So when you start a system design and every structure is embedded in racism and segregation, and I encourage people to look at, we just published a report called a drug test is not a parenting test, where we actually talk through the segregationist policies that undergird this particular system in the history, then you can't, we cannot redo it. You cannot fix it. The best case scenario for the foster system is a, is a salty cake. I have other choice words, but I'm not being taped. But that's the best way to, to describe it, right? Abolition is a way to solve problems. It is a theory of change. It's a way to analyze how to address a problem. So, for example, if I see that in neighborhoods like I live in, South Bronx, where I'm from, East Baltimore, where nearly every family, Black family, sorry, maybe be really specific, Black family or poor families being surveilled and controlled, I have two ways to analyze that problem. I can, one, analyze that problem of nearly 80 to 90% of families in our neighborhood having this system involvement that says their parents, primarily their Black moms, are bad caretakers and say, oh, that's a sweet cake. It's working the way it's supposed to go. And I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to frost it a little differently, maybe work it, work the batter a little differently. Or I say, whoa, there's, there's a system that's coming in and saying that nearly 80 to 90% of black kids in certain neighborhoods have bad moms. That's probably racist, right? Mm -hmm. And if I say to something is racist, even probably racist, then my job and everyone's job is to say we stop it and we then try to figure out how to redesign a way that works for families. And you don't redesign that 
in a boardroom. You don't redesign that with a bunch of people who've agreed with power. You redesign that by the people who've been impacted by that work. You redesign that in community and you redesign that work with a vision of ending and building and ending and, bu and building at the same exact time. And what's important to piggyback on what Aaron said, like with the cake batter, if you get into a car accident, they don't take your license forever. And so if a parent is not being perfect, how do we expect anyone to be perfect? So to Aaron's point, harm happens everywhere. Harm happens in that same foster family that you're taking the child from to put with a stranger. And the separation of the family, which the child originates from, doesn't mean that harm is not happening. Harm is happening just in the process of being pulled away from everyone and everything you know and love. I, I want to just emphasize that like the abolitionist movement around um, the foster system, family policing system is pretty new. And in that short time, I feel like you all have made like major <laughs> progress and traction. And so I wanted if you all could just describe some of that, because both the organizations, you all, you haven't been around that long, but in that short period of time, you all have seen like pretty significant movement towards also like building this larger movement? I'll start with saying one of the things that Movement for Family Power and JMAC for Families has in common is autonomy. We don't take government money and we get to be true and authentic about what it is we see and what it is we want and to pave a way to achieve that. Places that take money from the government, I feel their voices are limited and they're told to keep getting the money. They can't say or do certain things. And the framework of what they can't do is outside of anything that would help. And so it's a way to um, continue the reach of the powers that be to continue the oppression of communities. Yeah, I think yes to everything Joyce just said. First, I would just like to say, why is it successful? Because the only people who weren't thinking about abolition were the people with the power and the money. People who were directly impacted, communities that were directly impacted, they knew, we all knew that ACS and child services had to go. We all knew they were the cops, right? And I think that's super important for people to understand. If anyone's still under the false perception that this is a helping system, I want you just to pause and think for a moment. If I said to you, I'm calling CPS on you right now, would you be like, thank you? No, you wouldn't. You would not. That visceral reaction is because we actually know, even if we refuse to do work on it, that this system is actually about punishment, right? Otherwise, we would say thank you. We would say, because if, if, if I said to you, I would love to give you $1,000 and someone to help you clean your house every day, you'd be like, Yes, I am here for it. I think the next piece is as to why we've been able to move the needle a bit. From our perspective is we work a lot strategically. I don't think that I need to be in front to make sure that things are moving. And what I believe, and I think what our organization believes is that when we connect movements, when we connect spaces, when we support the building of political homes, and we support spaces where people can be together to generate ideas, and we support that from the grassroots, we actually move more quickly. Yeah, that's such an important point, um, just to be able to have that space to to do some experimentation and, and be able to test things out, and, and people don't usually have that space. 
So I just wanted to give each of you a chance if there's anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about, Joyce, if, if you have some final thoughts you wanted to share. I guess my final thoughts would be I would like to see other foundations move in the direction where Andres is so bravely moving into. We need brave spaces, not just within the communities, but to have them within the communities. We need them first outside the communities. And there's many foundations that have the same opportunity as you to fund organizations like JMAC for Families, Movement for Family Power, Drug Policy Alliance, and others that are really doing the work to build communities, but they choose instead to infuse an agency that already has billions of dollars that claim to do better if they just give them a little more money. They haven't caught the hint yet, I don't know. I would call them part of the problem to be straight, clear, and honest. I think at this point, even a dead blind person could see that infusing this agency with money is not helping the community and that the intentions are the outcomes. So I would appeal if there's any foundations listening to understand if we want to see change and we really want children to be cared for and safe, and we truly care about a child's well-being, then we care about making sure that their community have the resources that need, because police communities are not the safe communities. It's the communities with resources that is actually safe. Right now, there are currently, I would say, generously three organizations right now that are coming from an abolitionist framework that are receiving funds to resist the largest system of maternal control. That's what Dorothy Roberts calls it, three. And I think that I'm gonna say you all being, I'm talking to the audience of funders, have a responsibility to change that. And I'm gonna actually put out a request that in the next two years, that that number is at least quadrupled. That's minimal, that's too little. We have too small of an ecosystem. And October Up ends holding the first in-person convening for family regulation system abolition. And then the steering committee is six people. That's too little. You go to any other movement space and it's a minimum 30, 35 groups and you're cutting groups out at that point. And I'm not saying take away. I'm saying I build an abundance. All those movement spaces need more too. And what I really think people need to understand that are doing this work is that more is going to get us the power, Right that foundations have to create the opportunity. It is outrageous to me, anyone working on this, if you're not doing racial justice work and you're not trying to end the control of families, of black families in particular, you're not doing racial justice work. If you say you're doing reproductive justice work and you're not interested in ending the pipelines from hospitals to foster system, from foster system to uh, prison systems and family control, you're not doing reproductive justice work. You're not doing it. And until you start to pay attention to this incredibly gendered, incredibly heteronormative system of control, you're not doing the work to build power in our communities. Thank you both so much. This is a super rich, powerful conversation. Let's go.